Well, good evening. I've often heard about your congregation, and uh, this was my opportunity to learn to know you. My first impression is really good. You folks really sing. <laughs> and uh, anybody who sings like you sing is going to get my favorable comment. All right. Before I start, I would like to just make a little bit more comment on the subject of worship. You know, that word is an in, in, interesting word. It actually is a contraction. The old English word had two letters in here that are missing. Worthship. It had to do with values. Uh, the thing that you worship, and everybody worships, everybody. The thing that you worship is the thing that actually is number one in your life. That's why it says we must worship in truth, reality. And uh, there are some people that get very excited about things, but it's not God. Now they would say they worship God, but if you would be around them, enough, you would find that the thing that gets the most excited, and we talk, you talk about fervency, I, I think of passion. When I think of worship, I think of passion. Everyone has a number one passion in their life. There's something that they get more passionate about than any other thing. Whatever that is, that's what you're worshiping. That's the thing that has the most value to you. For many people who say they worship God, if you were to judge by their passion, it would be their business. Or it would be their sports that they like to be involved in, or maybe a hobby that they have, or how much money they have. And so, I think we need to think in terms of, what is it that gets us the most excited? What is it that pushes our button, if I may use that term? Uh, have you ever been in a group where people were talking about spiritual things and there was this person that wasn't saying much until somebody said some word, fishing or hunting or business or something, and all of a sudden they came alive. And they had stories to tell. And they had passion. And they were excited. And everybody was listening to them finally. This person had had not much to say when it was spiritual things. Well, whatever that was... That's what they were worshiping. And see, David, God was number one in his life. It took him, I don't know how many of the Psalms he wrote, at least half of them. So let's say it took him 75 Psalms to finally say everything he wanted to say about God. <laughs> it was obvious that God was number one in David's life. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so let's turn to, how many brought a purple book along? Okay, we don't have them tonight. I'd like for us to have enough for tomorrow night for sure. So bring them tomorrow. So turn to number 280 in your book. If you have this book, it's 810. Now the, uh, the name at the top there on the left is the author of the text, William Williams. How many have ever heard of him? 
Anybody know who William Williams was? How many have heard of John Wesley? Oh, that's interesting. This man was a contemporary. He did the same thing in Wales that John Wesley did in England. He rode about half as many miles. He wasn't covering as large a territory. But he was a, he was a John Wesley and a Charles Wesley and an Isaac Watts all wrapped up in one. He was a fabulous preacher, but he was a great singer. He wrote 900 songs. Most of them have never been translated from Welsh. This one is probably the one that uh, is most popular even in his own country. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And we want to sing just two verses, and we'll sing the last verse at the end. No soul, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing streams do flow. Let far recloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliver, strong deliver, be still my strength and shield be thou still my strength and shield now you have papers at the end of the uh, pews if you pass those out we're going to look at the first side tonight sing the new song now if you had been in Wales almost 300 years ago, you probably would have heard this song sung as the miners were marching to their work. Because this man, William Williams, set that whole country singing. And a tremendous revival broke out, a very unusual revival, in which there was almost no preaching. It was almost all singing. And Singing began and people got convicted. If there was preaching, it wasn't very long into the sermon till somebody burst forth in a song related to what was being said. And the Spirit of God was poured out on that nation in a mighty way. And that was the first of the two great revivals that Wales had, the Great Welsh Revival. So that's one incident. Now another incident I'd like to look at is in Second Chronicles, if you brought your Bibles. Chapter 20. This is a familiar passage, and we're not going to read the whole thing. It's the story where the nation of Judah under King Jehoshaphat was threatened by the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. And they were totally outnumbered. And so Jehoshaphat called all the people together at the temple and proclaimed a fast. And then he prayed. 
And he reminded God that uh, God was the ruler over the heathen and none were ever able to stand before him. He reminded God that he had given that land to Abraham, his friend, forever. He reminded God that God had promised that if the nation was ever in trouble and they came and stood before him in the temple and prayed that he would answer. He reminded God that these three nations were the nations that God did not permit them to attack when they came through the land they, they, because they were relatives. Ammon and Moab were the descendants of Lot and Edom, of course, the descendants of Esau. And so God said, look, you don't attack these people. And he said, so we never did these people any harm and look how they're treating us. So he asked God to judge them and uh, to, he pled his case before the Lord. And then we come to verse 14 and this is the part I want to look at. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Now, when you heard this story before, probably nobody, perhaps nobody pointed this out. Maybe they did. But this man that speaks in this passage was a descendant of Asaph. Does anybody know who Asaph was? One of David's singers. David had three counselors. Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. They were all singers. We'll look at that later in the message. And that's very interesting. This man was a singer, and he was a prophet. And uh, I guess before I studied this out years ago, I was not aware that music was so closely associated with prophecy. And we'll see that later as we go along. And so he was one of the Levites, a singer. And uh, he comes here now and prophesies. You know, when David set up his kingdom, one of the first things he did was organize temple worship. 4,000 people who Praise God full time in the temple. 4,000 men. Their full time job was to praise God in the temple. 288 of those were specially trained to teach the nation to sing. It's just amazing. And we're going to look at that a little bit later too. So here's one of these men. Jehaziel, a prophet. And so he tells the people in verse 17, well, verse 16, well, let's start reading in verse 15. Uh, we're chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go you down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. This man is prophesying, this singer. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Notice, the salvation of the Lord. We're going to be talking about that too. And so then, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And then the uh, Levites, the children of the Kohathites, and the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. They rose up the in the morning 
And uh, Jehoshaphat says, now you folks listen to your prophets. And the prophet directed them through Jehoshaphat to go out to the battle singing. And you know the story. The Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites fought each other until they were all dead. And then they went and gathered the spoil. It took them three days. This was, quite a, this was quite a victory. Again, the power of song. Or we can talk about our Anabaptist forefathers. Now, the Anabaptists almost didn't sing. I don't know if you're aware of that. The uh, Anabaptists in Zurich were followers of Zwingli. Zwingli did not believe in singing. There was no singing in his church till he died. And Conrad Grebel and Felix Mons and uh, George Blarock were his disciples. And uh, Conrad Grebel wrote a letter to Thomas Munzer in which he rebuked him for singing. I don't know why <laughs> Conrad Gabriel or Zwingli had that idea. I think uh, Conrad was uh, following Zwingli, but my, Paul urged the churches to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. James urged Christians who were married to sing. Paul and Silas sang in prison. And the Revel book of Revelation pictures singing saints, so I don't know where they came up with this. But thankfully, nobody followed Conrad Grebel in that one. George Blarock didn't. Felix Mons didn't. Because we have uh, Anabaptists, many Anabaptists that wrote songs. 130 of them mentioned by name. Felix Mons, George Blarock, Michael Sattler, Balthazar Hubmeyer, Hans Hoot, Menno Simons, Dirk Phillips, and Peter Riddeman. Just a few of the many Anabaptists that wrote songs. And I have a quote, I'm not going to read it, of a historian that describes the effect of the singing of the Anabaptists. So tonight we want to encourage our people to sing and we want to talk about what it is that singing does for us. Now I sort of feel like I'm preaching to the choir after hearing you people sing, but maybe I can inspire you to sing even more, okay? <laughs> All right, I have five points and they're listed there and we'll talk about each one of them. What happens when we sing? Now some people have the idea that singing is sort of, is just sort of to lift our spirits. Or it's something uh, that we do to get the service started, but the real service is what happens, you know, after we sing. Now, you op folks obviously don't believe that from the way you sang. But that's some people's idea, that singing is sort of an optional activity. It's a good activity, it's inspirational, but, you know, it's optional. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. It's not at all what the Bible says about singing. And it's because of that that many people don't sing. They think it is an optional activity. They're, they're, it's just something we do till the real service gets started. What I'd like to convince you tonight about is that singing is a resource, just like prayer. John Risser, a bishop from Virginia, preached in uh, the church that I grew up in one night. And I don't remember what he preached, but he said one thing that I have never forgotten. Beware of the boy who doesn't sing. You see, I think the devil understands the power of song, and I think he would not have anybody sing, but since there's going to be singing, I think he sort of says, well, if there's going to be singing, let's let the sisters sing, but we don't want any singing men. So he puts this suggestion in the hearts of little boys that singing is sissy, and we have boys that grow up that don't sing. And I'm not saying they can't be Christians. But I am saying 
that they are spiritually handicapped because singing is a resource. And I want to show you what happens when we sing. All right? So number one is songs result in spiritual enablement. Whether it's that situation in Wales, whether it's the situation with Jehoshaphat, whether it's our Anabaptist forefathers, whether it's the Wesleys, singing was a tremendous influence in the way God came to dwell in the hearts of people during, the, during those, those experiences. In fact, it was said of Luther that he did more harm by his singing than he ever did by his preaching. Paul and Silas prayed and sang in that prison. They didn't just pray, they sang. And you know that the prison was shaken and you know what happened in that instant. All right? Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now you can express your joy without singing, of course. But most singing is it's probably the best expression we have of joy. And the Bible says there's strength in that expression. God dwells in the praises of his people. Our brother just quoted it. Years ago, we had visitors in our home. DCO, who was from Argentina. Olivia was an American. They worked for Operation Mobilization all their lives. And uh, they came to visit our community. They were friends of David Brousseau. And they came, in, came to our home. She carried in her concert harp. Our brother, uh, my, my son Jeffrey was still living. He, he, he did very well with the piano. So uh, we just had a wonderful time singing. And then she told this marvelous story that uh, they were in the States visiting at one point and they were staying in a hotel in Atlanta and the word had gone out that evening that there were two boys, two, young, two men that were loose in the city and there had been several murders and people were to make sure their doors were closed and locked and they were suspicious of any visitors that came. They didn't hear the warning. And so friendly people as they were, they left their motel door open because they were expecting friends and they just wanted their friends to be able to walk in without knocking. And in walked these two murderers. Now, we're often asked the question, what do you non-resistant people do if somebody attacks your family? I wonder how many of you would sing. I think most people would pray. But remember, Paul and Silas prayed and sang. And God dwells in the praises of his people. And Olivia understood that. And she was sitting on the edge of the bed when those men walked in, and she stood right up and walked toward them singing a gospel song. And they turned and ran. Now, I'm not saying that'll always happen, but this is a resource. If somebody attacks your family, lead your family in a song <laughs> while you're praying. <laughs> it is a defense. God dwells in the praises of his people. That's what I'm trying to say. So, songs result in spiritual enablement. It is a resource. Use it. Not just in church. The Anabaptists were known for their singing while they worked. There was a, 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 an Aaron Price was his name. He was known, people knew him in the community for his beautiful songs that he sang when he was working in his vineyard. Now, my mother was a singer. She couldn't carry a part. She sang only soprano. 
She couldn't read any notes. She never sang alto uh, or read any music, but she loved to sing. She sang all the time. When my mother was not singing, she either was sick or else we knew we were in trouble. All right? And I credit a lot of my spiritual experience and certainly my singing to my mother. She gave us excellent ear training, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later in, in the week, in the sessions. Number two, songs cause God to dwell in our experience. That's sort of what we've been talking about. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Now David knew this, and that's why I think he established singing. One of the first things he did as a king was established these singers in the temple singing full-time. That was their full-time job. 4,000 men. I think David said, look, I want the presence of God in the center of my kingdom. So the best thing I can do is to have singers in the center of my kingdom singing all of the time. Now, I don't know how David knew that. I don't know if out there on the hillsides with his harp and his singing... He somehow connected the power that he had over that lion and over that bear with the singing he did. I don't know. But somehow David realized that God dwells where his song is. Because you see, God is a singer. God is a singer. It says in Zephaniah, he's going he's to joy over us with singing. wonder what that sounds like. Did you ever try to imagine what it sounds like when God sings? I have a son, Jeffrey, who has been with the Lord for 11, 11 years. I don't know if Jeffrey's heard this or not. I have a sneaking suspicion if he did, he's saying to himself, wait till dad hears this. <laughs> anyway, God's a singer. And this is a very important part of God. I kind of think that's why it says David was a man after God's own heart. God was a singer. David was a singer. And this was very important to David. You know, we all remember that incident where when they dedicated the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the presence of God came so powerfully into that situation that everybody had to leave. Did you ever notice when it happened? It happened when the music began. God said one time to, to uh, Samuel that Saul was going to prophesy. And so Samuel told him, now you go out to this certain place and you're going to meet some prophets. And when he met those prophets, he began prophesying. Do you know what those prophets were doing when he met them? They were coming down a hill making music. I mean, just instance after instance, you see this in the scriptures, that music is associated with the presence of God. So if you're in a situation like Olivia was, and you think, God, I need your presence and I need it now, the very best thing you can do is sing. I mean, that's the greatest guarantee if you're singing with true worship that God is going to be there. Number three, songs speak to the world of the spirit. These points are all related, of course. 2 Kings 3, 14 and 15 in this instance, Judah and Israel and Edom are going out to fight against Moab. And in this particular instance, they ran out of water. 
Well, you can't fight a battle with a dehydrated army. So they were in bad trouble. I want you to turn to this, 2 Kings chapter 3. Now Jehoshaphat, as he did too often, was going out to battle with a wicked king. His name was Jehoram, the son of Ahab. And so uh, they sent to Elisha for help. What are they going to do? They have no water. In verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, this wicked Jehoram, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass, when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he prophesied. Songs speak to the world of the Spirit. And we're going to talk tomorrow morning about what kind of songs we should sing. And that's very important. Because there are two kinds of spirits. The heathen know exactly what kind of music they need to produce to speak to those other spirits. But if we sing the right kind of songs, somehow spirits are very sensitive to this. I mean, when David sang for Saul, the evil spirits had to leave. Spirits are very sensitive to music, okay? And so, uh, we need to be careful what kind of songs we sing, what kind of spirits we invite by our singing. Number four, songs inspire prophetic insight and wisdom. As in the case of Jehoshaphat, we have Jehaziel, a singer, who had a prophetic insight. In 1 Chronicles 25, 1, you're back there in the Old Testament. Would you turn to that? First Chronicles 25, verse 1. I referred to this earlier. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Juduthan, who should prophesy with harps and psalteries and with cymbals. I think that is a most interesting scripture. Now, we're not going to have harps and psalteries and cymbals, <laughs> in our services at least. But this had uh, told you that Saul prophesied one time when he met some prophets that, that, that were singing. Or I think they were playing instruments. And we have Elisha, who prophesies whenever minstrel was, was playing music. There's something about music that inspires prophetic insight. And then I remembered the scripture, which I think I put on your paper. Blessed are they who know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. They will have clear direction in life. Were you ever in a situation where you didn't know what to do? You lost your keys or something happened and you were in a real predicament and you didn't know where to turn? Did you sing? Did you sing? Songs inspire 
prophetic insight. They shall walk in the light of thy countenance, those who know the joyful sound. So this is very important that we do that. Now people like David understood that. They understood that singing was not optional. They understood the, uh, the, the tremendous power of song. And that's what I'm trying to convince you of tonight. That singing is a resource. It's something just like prayer. And I'm going to put it right on the same level. I'm going to say singing is probably as powerful a resource as prayer. Okay, And especially if you're singing a prayer. <laughs> if you're doing both. All right. It's a powerful resource. And the fifth point that I have there is song is important to God. And I already referred to the verse, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. At creation, Job says, all of the morning stars sang with joy. There was a great singing celebration whenever the creation occurred. I mean, this is a really important aspect of who God is. All right? There are 300 references to song in the Bible. And most of them are commands. When it says, sing unto the Lord, that's as much of a command as any other command in the Bible. Did you know that you're disobeying a command when you don't sing? Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. That's <laughs> what we sing. It's a command. Now why would God command us to sing? I love to sing, Brother Elvin. God doesn't have to make me sing. Or does he? You know when I don't sing? When I need it most. When I'm down in the dumps. And that's why God commands us to sing. He knows that when we need it most, we're probably not going to do it. You know, the children of Israel were down in uh, Babylon, and they said, sing us a song. No, oh, we can't sing any songs. We hung our harps on the willows. That's when they should have been singing. It would have reminded them of God's promises. It would have reminded them of all the great things God did for them. It would have, it would have instructed them, it would have empowered them, it would have given them the things that they needed at that very time. And so that's why God commands us to sing. He knows we need to sing, whether we feel like it or not. In fact, we probably need to sing more uh, when we don't feel like it than when we do. Now, what is the song about? What is this new song that uh, God is always talking about? Well, I want you to turn to Psalm 96. And here in two verses, we have three iterations of the command to sing. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. So, what are we to sing? A new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Who's to sing? Everybody. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. So what are we to sing? Well, we're to sing what David sang. David was always singing about how God delivered him. Our God is a salvation-bearing God. We're not just talking about going to heaven. We're talking about 
the word salvation comes from the word salvage. God is constantly salvaging the mess of our lives. The reason Paul sang in that prison is because of Paul's perspective. You know, he was there in that prison in Philippi. And while he was still in that prison, he said this. I know this shall turn to my salvation. I used to read that and I think, what did he mean? Paul said, I know ahead of time that God is going to salvage this situation. I know this shall turn, Paul said. And we know it did. We know that Paul's situation, uh, great glory came out of it. And he was there in prison. He said that when he was in prison. It didn't look very hopeful. He was chained to a guard. Four hours. Then they brought in another guard. Four hours. Well, I like Paul's perspective. Paul had what you call a captive audience. Those poor men had to hear him pray. They had to hear him dictate his letters. They had to hear him sing. They were stuck with Paul. And then another guy came in. And for four hours, he had to take it. I'm not sure who the prisoner was. I kind of think it wasn't Paul. <laughs> you see, Paul saw his circumstances through Christ. We often see Christ through our circumstances. And then we have doubts about Christ because we're looking at him through the lens of our difficult circumstances. Paul was always looking at his circumstances through Christ. Where is Christ in this circumstance? I'm in prison. Oh, in fact, he says something interesting in that passage. He says, I am set for the defense of the gospel. You go home and look up that word set. It means providentially placed. I'm exactly where God wants me. <laughs> and so he praised the Lord in that before when he was taken in that prison. And if you turn to the end of the book, did you ever read the end of the book? He tells all the people who uh, want to send greetings to the church of Philippi. And it says, especially those that are of Caesar's household. Those were those guys. Some of them got converted. And so singing was very much a part of Paul's whole mentality. He's the one that says, be filled with the Spirit. And he doesn't say speaking to yourself in tongues like some people say. That's not there. That's, by the way, that's where it should be. That's where it should be in the Bible. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in tongues, according to some people. But I like to point out to them, it says speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The mark of the Spirit-filled person is he sings and he sings and he sings, especially when he's in prison, especially when the circumstances are difficult. He's singing his faith that God will salvage this situation. He believes that. He sings it ahead of time, like Paul did. That's a spirit-filled person. A person whose praise is only enhanced by his difficult circumstances. That's when he really praises God. And I can't help but say the rest of it. Spirit-filled life, singing, as I just said, 
giving thanks. That's the second aspect of, of, of a spirit-filled life. I'm off the subject here, but I can't help it. Do you know what the third evidence of being filled with the Spirit is? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. How many ever heard a sermon preached that one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is that you know how to bow your spirit to your brother? So the three evidences of the Spirit-filled life. A man who has a song that will not quit. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Number two, he has a thanksgiving that doesn't quit no matter what the circumstance is. And number three is he can bend. And by that definition, there are a lot of people who are claiming that experience that need to be challenged. All right, let's continue with this little passage. So that's what we're to sing. We're to sing about salvation. We're to make it clear to everybody that God is dif- our God is different from any other God. The other gods aren't that way. The other gods are all angry. You go to study all the heathen gods, you talk to the heathen, and their gods are angry. They don't deliver anybody. In fact, what they do is cause trouble. I was in India three years, two years ago. Spent three weeks there talking, to, uh, teaching uh, Indian pastors. You know how many gods they have in India? A million and a half. And they're still counting. And every one of them is angry. And the heathen tried to appease their angry gods. They don't look to their gods for any help. They just want the gods to not cause them any trouble. I said to an Indian missionary one time, what is your message to the Hindu? And he said, oh, that's simple. There's only one God. (laughs) And they go, that's a relief. And then you tell them that God is a good God. And all of that is good news to the Hindu. We have a God who delivers. And the world should know that. By our songs. All right? Verse 4. Verse 3. Declare his glory among the heathen. What is glory? Glory is a manifestation of excellence. The glory of a sunset is a sunset that's so beautiful that you couldn't add anything to it. The glory of youth is a young man who's everything a young man should be. It's an expression of excellence. And we live in a world that does not believe that God is excellent. I talk to them on the phone all the time calling from the billboards. And they have an attitude against God as an awful God. And they have all kinds of things to blame him for. Christians are supposed to live and sing and, uh, and function in a way that people get the the right impression about God, that he's, he's a great God, and he's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. I love that picture that one of the prophets gives of the heathen gods. When a nation is being conquered, they put their gods on their animals to, 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 to get them out of the country, and they walk alongside and hold them so they don't fall off. Now, what kind of good does a God like that do? Not very much if he can't even take care of himself. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. I don't know what you do when you get get to start losing your perspective. I'll tell you what I do. I go out and look at the sky. And I don't know an awful lot about astronomy, but I know a little bit. I know the Milky Way is like a big dish with a little hump in the middle. looks a little bit like that. 
Does anybody know what the diameter of the Milky Way is? The reason it looks like a band across the sky is because we're looking at it this way. So it looks like a band across the sky. Does anybody know what the diameter of that thing is? 100,000 light years. Now, light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles a second. This is the distance the light travels in one year at 186,000 miles a second. If the Earth is 6,000 6, years old, light has traveled six-tenths of a percent in 6,000 years across the Milky Way. This is vast. Does anybody know what, what this distance is? The thickness at the thickest part. This is 10,000 light years. That means that in all of 6,000 years of history, light has only traveled six-tenths of the thickness of the Milky Way. And there are billions of galaxies. There are enough galaxies to give everybody in the world at least 20 for their own. The Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. I like to go out and look at Rigel when I, in the winter is the best time to see Rigel. How many, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> say the constellation Rigel is in. Orion. <laughs> I had a senior moment there. How many recognize Orion in the sky? All right, that bottom star is Rigel. This star is Rigel. That star is 500 light years away. So the light that you see when you go out and look at Rigel started out when Columbus discovered America and is just now arriving. Now, it may have burned out 300 years ago, but it'll be another 300 years before it disappears. The Lord made the heavens, and we could go on and on and on. David understood this. And so, just turn quickly to Psalm 3. This psalm fits a pattern that you find in a number of David's psalms where David has a problem and he turns the problem into praise through prayer. That's a pattern you see with David. So here's a problem. David prays. You have a problem. You have praise. I'm sorry. You have problems. You have prayer. And then you have praise. Now I want you to notice when this psalm was written. When David was fleeing from Absalom, his son, David had sinned, and he was suffering for his sin. And he's fleeing, and this is what he says. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. He's a bad man. Look what he did with Bathsheba. And he was in trouble. He was fleeing from his son. His supplies were short. <coughs> he didn't know 
what God was going to do. Punish him? David really did not know exactly what was going to happen here. He was in a bad situation. And people were saying, there's no help for him. But thou, Lord, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. So what David does is he looks back over his life. And he says, Lord, you have been my helper. Regardless what I've done, I live in repentance toward you, and you have been a helper to me. It's a little bit like Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor had a logo for the China Inland Mission. On the left-hand side was the Chinese logo for Ebenezer. Anybody know what Ebenezer means? Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come. On the right-hand side was the logo, uh, was the Chinese letter for Jehovah Jireh. Does anybody know what Jehovah Jireh means? The Lord will provide. And that was always David's mentality. Ebenezer, I know God, what he does, because of what he has done. And I know his promises, and I trust him. All right? So he says, I cry... I know what God is going to, I know he's a deliverer. I know I've done wrong, but I've repented, and I'm on God's side, and I know he's a deliverer. So, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, he heard me out of his holy hill, and I laid me down and slept. <laughs> See? He's, he's celebrating God's salvation. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. In the past, that's what you've done to all my enemies. Saul and all those other people that came against him. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. I'm on your side and they are not. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord, thy blessing is upon thy people, Selah. So you see how David is praising the Lord before the deliverance even happens. See, that's the beautiful thing about God's people. They praise God for his salvation before it happens. When they're in the middle of the difficulty, they praise God. That's why it's an evidence of the spirit-filled life, because people who are not spirit-filled do not do that. Turn to Psalm 100. I'm just trying to show you this tremendous resource. And as I said, this is unique to God. The heathen do not have this testimony at all. All right? Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Now, I told you, the heathen don't, if they do sing, they sing mournful songs. They are constantly afraid of their gods. And God says, I want you to make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you, before you have your devotions, begin with singing? You know, in these days, there were kings. 
And you didn't just go to a king and go rushing into his presence. You brought the best gift you could bring. And God is telling us what he wants as a gift when we come into his presence. Now do you understand why we sing before we do anything else when we come to church? He says, this is the prescribed gift. You're coming to a great king, and he is asking you to bring a song. Come into his presence with singing, and this is repeated. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. I have to wonder if that's why there was such power in that Welsh revival, that there was such power there with Jehoshaphat. They came into God's presence with a song before they made their requests. And I wonder how many of our prayers would be answered better. Now, God is a great God, and he understands our stupidity often, and he does things in spite of ourselves. But I wonder how much more effective our prayers would be if we came into his presence with singing. This is what it says. And you'll notice in the front of the purple book, it says, come before his presence with singing. (laughs) I wanted the people who use that book never to forget that that is the important role of singing. It brings us right into God's presence. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him. Notice, thankfulness. And bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. When I read that, I think about communism. You know, in 1987, the Soviet Union celebrated the 70th anniversary of Marxism. And they marched their weapons down through the streets and their soldiers, and they made a great celebration of communism in 1987. In 1988, the Soviet Union fell. But in 1988, the Christian church celebrated the thousandth anniversary of Christianity in Russia. His truth endureth for all generations. Nothing else does. And he's saying, I want you to sing that to the nations. I want people to hear this wonderful, wonderful song. Two New Testament concepts of song, and we conclude. I already alluded to this. Song is the authentic expression of the Spirit-filled life. If anybody ever asks you, what is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit, tell them. It's an unquenchable song, especially in time of difficulty. A person who has that attitude toward life is a Spirit-filled person. And the second point His song is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament sacrifices. The Bible says we're to bring a sacrifice that is the fruit of our lips. That's what Hebrews 13, 15 says. Now, in the Old Testament, when you brought a gift, what kind of gift were you to bring? Perfect. You didn't bring your lamb with a missing tail or a broken leg or an eye that was bad. You went out to your flock and you looked out the very best lamb that was there. That's the only one God would accept. Now this is the sacrifice. Not a lamb, but praise. And I think this is the rationale for us to do whatever we can do to render the very best praise we can render. 
First of all, the heart, obviously. But I think also we should pay some attention to, to, to singing as well as we possibly can. Being able to read music so we can sing more songs and learn things more quickly that we can sing to God. And to sing in a way that somebody coming in is, is, is just blessed by the quality of the singing. And especially the spiritual quality, which I sensed here tonight. Just a wonderful passion behind your singing. So, that's sing the new song. Tomorrow morning we will look at what does the new song look like. In an age where people are confused as to what kind of songs we should be singing, I want to give us some direction as to what kind of songs we should sing. So, if you will turn it in your hymnal again to 280, we will now sing this last verse. So remember, singing is a resource. Begin to make it a habit to sing in every circumstance of life. Be a singer. Now this says, songs of praises I will ever sing to thee. We're making a promise that we're going to sing songs of praises in every circumstance. You know, we need to be careful what we sing. Did you know the Quakers don't sing? Not much. If somebody's inspired, they'll sing. But they don't basically, they don't characteristically have singing in their, in their services. Do you know why? They have discovered that, most, that many people are lying most of the time when they sing. And they don't want their people to be lying in their worship service. I mean, we sing, Fully surrendered, Lord divine, I will be true to thee. I will go with thee all the way. All of thy bidding will obey. Now to the world I bid farewell. We sing those songs. We sing, uh, Take my life and let it be. I always smile when I see that in the hymnal. That's usually the title, Take My Life and Let It Be. And I think, you know, that's what most people want. Take my life and then just let it be. But we sing some amazing things in that song. Listen to this. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Really? And then we hold on with all our might. And the Quakers say, we don't want people lying in our worship service, so we're not going to sing. So you're going to promise in this song, songs of praises I will ever sing to thee. Or I think your book says give to thee. You're making a promise, okay? I'm not trying to con you into anything. I'm just trying to warn you. If you don't really mean that, maybe you shouldn't sing. All right? Why not tread the verge of Jordan? <clears throat> So when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside, bear me through that hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, help us to be honest. Help us to make a real effort to discover what it is we truly worship. 
not just what we sing about, but what we demonstrate by our passion in every aspect of life to be the first thing. You said seek first the kingdom of God. That's what it means to worship. And I pray that every person will leave this place honestly analyzing and then coming to terms with whatever it is they discover so that their worship finally centers on you and you alone. Bless us, Father. I pray that this congregation will take the challenge and begin to do their singing while they're working and in all the aspects of life that they would find them singing, especially in difficulty, Lord, when they need your presence, when they need your wisdom, when they just simply need this wonderful resource of song, help them to remember to sing. And bless this congregation. I pray that like they experienced in Wales, there'd be a tremendous outpouring of your Holy Spirit and revival constantly in this community, borne along by song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, bring your papers tomorrow and we'll discuss the other side.